Josh, good morning. Great to see everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and delighted to have you. And as Josh said, uh, as he finished up there, we really have a big weekend ahead of us this next weekend. This next Friday is Good Friday. I would love to see as many of you as can make it to one of those two services. Join us for that, 5 o'clock or 6.30. That's really a reflective, contemplative time. We'll take communion and just reflect on the seriousness of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you're new to church, the reason it's called Good Friday, it's kind of an irony thing. Right? Jesus died on this Friday, but it's good because of the way he paid for our sins, and so we'll take some time to reflect on that. And then Easter, this is the big day. We're, we're super excited for this. Four services, 6 o'clock, or I'm sorry, 6.30, 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m. So please join us for one of those. If you don't have a preference, if you don't have a, a commitment, if you have people that aren't necessarily coming with you, then come at 6.30 or 8 if you can. If you can come early, join us for that. Uh, it, it's almost a sunrise service there at 6.30. Um, but if you have friends, uh, please just come whenever works for them. And if you haven't had a chance to invite some people yet, pick up one of these Easter Sunday invite cards. They're out at the info desk and invite people. Uh, bribe them. <laughs> bribe them with lunch or with coffee or something. A couple weeks ago, uh, Josh taught through the story of the paralytic man who had the four friends who dug through the roof to get this paralytic guy to Jesus. Be one of those four friends, all right? Do whatever it takes. Uh, bribe them, beg them, pay them. Do whatever you have to do to get people here to hear the message of, of Christ and to see people baptized. It's going to be a powerful day, so looking forward to it. All right, well, today, as you maybe see here, we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark uh, for a couple weeks, um, this Sunday and next Sunday. Uh, essentially, the reason for that is I was looking at kind of the passages as we had them broken down, and I thought that the passage for this Sunday and the passage for after Easter actually fit better together, so we're going to study that kind of all as one unit. And then I started just reflecting on the Holy Week and on Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, there's a particular figure that when we get to it in Mark, I think because we're going to focus so much on the resurrection, we, we might be tempted to, to pass over this particular individual and not give him the attention that I think is maybe worth it. And, and the reason I think that's true is because this is a figure that if you've been around church, if you've ever heard an Easter sermon, you've probably heard his name, but you probably know nothing about him. We're going to change that a little bit today. This is a guy, he appears in all four Gospels. He's a very key figure, as we'll see, in the resurrection of Jesus. And you don't know anything about him. He's like Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren, who's he? What else? Uh, there's streets named after him. Uh, Right, I saw Time Magazine had a, a top 10 list of forgettable presidents, and Martin Van Buren was number one on that list. He was ahead of the guy who was president for like 30 days because he got sick at the inauguration, right? Because at least he, that's somewhat more memorable than Martin Van Buren, right? So, so we're going to look at a guy, a well-known name, Joseph of Arimathea. If you've read the Easter story, if you've heard an Easter sermon, you've heard his name, but you don't know much about him. Now, uh, the, the first place that I really was kind of introduced to a lot of what we're going to look at today uh, is in a book by a guy named Larry Osborne ca called Accidental Pharisees. And I think this actually fits well because um, we looked last week a little bit of the history of the Pharisees. And, uh, and here's, here's what uh, Larry Osborne has to say about the Pharisees. He says, the truth is that accidental Pharisees are made up of people just like you and me, people who love God, love the scriptures, and are trying their best to live by them. The thing to note about accidental Pharisees is just that. They're accidental. 
They're like dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. That is so true. I mean, breakfast may be a plan, but I don't know that you plan dinner there. So, so, so we looked last week at the Pharisees, those people that had risen up because they wanted Israel to be faithful to God so that God's Messiah would come and God would overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire and all that sort of stuff. And they said, we got to get serious, we got to get committed. And, and, and that was great. The problem was they became so committed to their works and so committed to their own righteousness, and that became the standard by which they looked down and judged everyone else. And so these were the people who were looking around at the, the tax collectors and the sinners, the people that were the, the down-and-outers in society that Jesus so loved, and they would look at them with contempt. They would, they would be disgusted at them. And, and what Osborne says in that book is he says, there's a real tendency for even Christians who say that we love the Lord and we're, we're, we experience His grace to drift into becoming accidental Pharisees. And in that book then, one of the stories he tells is this story of Joseph of Arimathea. So he shows up in all four Gospels. So what I want to do today is I want to just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I want to look at each particular account uh, where we see something about Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll see if we can put together a composite sketch of this particular man and then reflect a little bit on, on, why, uh, on why he's important and what we can learn from it. All right, so here's the first passage. We, we read this here. is Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. The rest of the passage we read goes on to say that Joseph uh, had him laid in a brand new tomb, a tomb that he had carved out, a tomb that no one else had been laid in. Uh, it was common that there would be sort of group burial tombs, and so that was a significant thing, that this was a new tomb. New tombs were expensive to, to dig out of the rock, and he had just paid for that and had just done that, and he buried Jesus there. What do we learn about Joseph of Arimathea from that? Well, of course, he's, uh, you know, going to Pilate and saying, I want to I do this, but we see some details here. First is that Joseph is a rich man. He's a rich man. Next, we see that, that Matthew identifies Joseph here as a disciple of Jesus. Now, this isn't going to be the main point, but if we just pause here for a second, this is worth pointing out. A rich man who was a disciple now, there are many people who think that can't even be possible. Right? Jesus himself said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and you've heard it said that, that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so there are some who, who would kind of believe a kind of poverty theology. Right? Prosperity theology is the idea that if you believe God and you love God, he'll make you healthy, he'll make you wealthy, he'll solve all your problems, he'll do all the things you want. Eh, wrong. That, that just doesn't line up anywhere biblically, it's, it's, and it's really ruining a lot of Christian movements around the world as that prosperity gospel spreads. But something that I've noticed, maybe just as an overreaction to that prosperity gospel, especially here in America, is a kind of poverty gospel that says you're more loved by God if you're poor. If you're rich, you can't really follow Jesus. You can't really be serious 
about Jesus. If you're really serious about Jesus, you give up money, you give up possessions, and you move over to Africa, and you go live there, and you go live among the poor, and you go do that. Now, let me just ask, just think about this logically for a second. Who's going to pay for all the people that are going to go to Africa after they gave up all their money? Who's going to get their support letters? Who's going to say, hey, would you consider generously praying about giving $50, $75, or $100 a month? Who's going to get those? The people with money, right? So it's not to say that God loves rich people more. For sure that's not the case, but he doesn't love them less. Joseph here is a rich man who was a disciple of Jesus. Now, this, uh, this is really interesting because he's a rich man and he asks for Jesus' body and he buries Jesus in this rich man's tomb, there's a couple things here that are, that are important. One is this is a fulfillment actually of Isaiah 53.9. Isaiah 53.9 says they made him a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his tomb. So this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given 700 years before the time of Christ that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. So Joseph of Arimathea fulfills that, but think about this as well. It's quite possible that Joseph of Arimathea, by burying Jesus in a rich man's tomb, provides for him the first step in Jesus' exaltation. Think about Jesus in Jesus' incarnation, Jesus humbled himself. He became a man. He put on flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus did not experience prosperity or wealth or riches at any point in his life. He was born in a borrowed manger. He was raised in an environment in Nazareth. Who's ever heard of anything good from there? Throughout his ministry, he said, birds have nests and foxes have holes. The Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to live. So Jesus lives in poverty his whole life. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But then after his death, he gets to go to a rich man's tomb. He was born in a borrowed manger, poor, and he died and was buried in a rich man's tomb, rich, powerful, exalted king, right? Maybe this is actually the first step in the exaltation of Jesus, just worth thinking about. So that's what Matthew tells us. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich disciple of Jesus. Interestingly, I saw this, the Catholic Church has named this Joseph of Arimathea the patron saint of funeral directors. So if you're a funeral director, you probably already knew this. You could come preach this sermon because you know this guy. I just thought that was so funny. There's one of those for everything, I guess. So, all right, next, Mark. You don't need to turn there. We're going to put these passages on the screen. If you want to turn to them, you can, but, but don't feel like you need to. You might just get frustrated trying to turn the pages fast. What does Mark have to say about this? Here's what Mark says. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What does this tell us uniquely or differently perhaps about Joseph of Arimathea? Well, it tells us that he was a respected member of the council. A respected member of the council. What council is being referred to here? Well, it's the council uh, called the Sanhedrin or the Seventy. This is a, a group of people that were religious leaders, religious rulers in Israel. They were in a sense the, the, the Jewish leaders' local government. 
who had to constantly interact with the Roman governors who were sort of over that region. But the Jewish people would have looked to the Sanhedrin as the authority and as their particular leaders and rulers. There's a group of 70 people, perhaps because in Deuteronomy 18, uh, when Moses sets up 70 people to, to sort of lead under these governors, perhaps that's why it was 70 people. It was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and kind of a lot of different political and religious parties were all sort of part of this. They had an interesting process when they would vote is they would allow the youngest members to vote first because their concern was that if they had the youngest members vote later, they'd be too influenced by the older and the wiser people. So they said, you're going to vote first because we want to hear what you think, and then we'll let the wiser people talk. And this would have been a big week for them, this Easter week, this Passover week. That, when, when Mark says it was the day of preparation, he's saying it's the day of the preparation for the, for the Passover, for this celebration. This was a huge time. Jerusalem swelled to hundreds of thousands of people who would come for this, these festivities. And so inevitably, the Sanhedrin, the council, would have meetings and important meetings, and they would all be there. Even though Joseph's from Arimathea, he would be there. They would meet. Well, this particular week, they had something really important to meet about. See, there was this guy who was causing trouble. He was going around saying things like, before Abraham was... I am. And calling God his father. And telling people, your sins are forgiven. And they would think, well, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And he'd go, bingo. A man claiming to be God. A man who after that Palm Sunday when the crowd shouted, Lord, save us, Hosanna, the very first thing he does is he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables where poor people were being extorted. They would come with their little bird or their their sheep and they would come and they'd say, I'm ready to make this sacrifice. I'm ready to make this offering. And the people in the temple would kind of give it a look through and go, well, you know, actually that lamb is just looks a little bit too not perfect, but we have some pre-approved lambs just for you. And I can make you a deal. And Jesus saw the corruption, the ugliness of that, and the way that it was keeping down the most marginalized and the most poor. And he went in and he overturned the tables. It says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And there's the makings of drama. And the Sanhedrin's right in the middle of this because they have to keep peace with the Roman governors. They, they're kind of responsible to make sure there's not an insurrection. And they begin to meet this week and go, what do we do about this man, Jesus? For years, they've been trying to kill him. And finally this week, here's the chance. And fortunately, one of Jesus' own disciples betrays him. They pay him 30 pieces of silver to Judas, and Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus is arrested, and he is brought before who? The council. The council. The Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, the head priest, but these 70 people of whom Joseph was part are the people who made up lies who made up stories so that they could condemn Jesus to death. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich disciple of Jesus, who was a member of the council. Hmm. How does that work? 
member of the, he's a disciple of Jesus. He's in the following Jesus line. He loves Jesus. What happened? Did he say anything? Did he speak up? What did he do? How did he handle this? He's part of the group condemning Jesus to death. What was his role in it? Let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 23. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What do we learn uniquely here? He was a good and righteous man, Luke tells us. He was a good man. He was righteous. He was committed to the Lord. And he had not consented to their decision and action. Now, you've got to kind of wonder, okay, well, what does that look like? Because you know, you may, maybe you're part of, of meetings at, at work where you're part of teams or groups that have to make important decisions. I know for us as, as a church, we're led by a team of elders, and we have to make important decisions from time to time. And there's not always 100% agreement when the conversation starts. In fact, because a lot of us are leaders and are, are strong-minded and have deep convictions about the Scripture and about how to love and serve people and how to reach our community, there's often disagreement. There's often pushback. There's often discussion that gets a little tense, but we have a rule. We have a, a way that we think about this, which is to say, listen, we disagree as much as we can to come to the right decision when we're together, but when we leave the meeting, we're united. When we leave the meeting, you don't go later to your buddy and go, you know, I didn't vote for that decision. Right? That's a huge problem if you have that kind of dissension within a leadership group. You've maybe experienced that at work or in other environments. So my question is, Joseph didn't consent to the decision or the action, but did he say anything? Because when you read the story, if you read it through all the different accounts of Jesus being on trial before the Sanhedrin, you don't get the sense that there's much disagreement. You don't get the sense that there's much debate, that there's much arguing, that there's much, all right, are we on the same page here? Because I know we've been talking about a lot of different things. Are we sure we're together? Yeah, I guess we're together. There's none of that. It's just one person after another piling on Jesus, mocking Jesus, making up lies about Jesus. There's no indication from any of the four gospel accounts that there was pushback, that there was resistance, that there were people going, you know, guys, really, I, I don't think this guy's that big of a threat, and, and maybe we ought to just, you know, let this play out. There's no discussion about that. So what was Joseph's role here? He's a rich man. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's a good and righteous man, a member of the council. He doesn't consent to the decision. What was his role in the decision? Well, John tells us this in John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Again, John points out, He's a disciple of Jesus. Right, so you have it on the authority of God's word two times that Joseph of Arimathea is a disciple of Jesus. But John adds a detail. He was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear 
of the Jews. So he's there. A well-respected member of the council. Right? Not one of the early young guys that's just going to vote right at the beginning. Everyone's going, okay, get him out of the way. He's a, he's, a, he's a well-respected voice. He's probably an older voice. He's an influential voice. If he maybe speaks up, perhaps people listen. Perhaps people take a different tone, take a different direction. But what does he do? He says nothing. And the council condemns Jesus to die a few years earlier, the Roman government had removed the Jewish leader's ability to actually put someone to death, which is why they then had to go to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, here's this thing, and they kind of trump up this charge, hoping that the Romans will kill him. And in fact, that's what happens, and Jesus is killed with a mocking and yet ironic sign above his head, the king of the Jews. What do you think it felt like? For Joseph. He had to have felt ashamed, huh? How could I let this happen? If I had just said something, if I had just spoken up, if I had just said, you know, guys, maybe we should let this play out. Maybe something would have been different if I had just said something. But he didn't. He was a coward. He was weak. He was afraid. He goes, I can't change it. I can't go undo it. But maybe what I can do, I'm going to at least give him a proper burial. Because you know what happened to bodies in those days? These bodies that were unclean, they didn't get proper burials. And they definitely didn't get burials in rich men's tomb. They often got thrown onto a scrap heap where they were plucked away at by birds and eaten by dogs. And so Joseph does something finally, a little bit too late, but finally courageous and goes to Pilate, right? All four accounts said he went to Pilate, right? Imagine the courage that that would have taken. A well-respected member of the Sanhedrin going to Pilate and saying, Pilate, can I please have his body so I can give him a proper burial? And Pilate's going, aren't you part of the group that just condemned him to death? Now you want to bury him? Joseph's going, I know. Keep it quiet. right? Because listen, what kind of pressure does Joseph face from those other people in the council if they find out you gave that blasphemer a grave? So finally, he gets courageous and he gets bold and he goes to Pilate and he asks him for the body. John actually goes on to tell us that Nicodemus, the other significant leader among the Jewish rulers, who had come to Jesus in John chapter 3 by, by secrecy at night, they had the whole conversation about being born again. This same Nicodemus actually shows up to help Joseph prepare Jesus' body for burial. They bury him. And three days later, Jesus' body doesn't have to reconstitute out of the belly of a dog. It's raised powerfully and victoriously and exalted from a grave. Why? Because of Joseph of Arimathea. No Joseph of Arimathea, no resurrection, at least how we know it. 
So what do we learn from this? By the way, I just think it's interesting to go, wow, look at all these accounts. There aren't many people that are mentioned in all four Gospels. He is. What do we learn? Here's the first thing we learn is that God used a cowardly disciple, not a committed one, to begin the exaltation of Jesus. God, in his grace, used a cowardly, afraid, silent, secret disciple to begin the exaltation of Jesus. That's amazing, right? Because you had a lot more committed disciples that God could have used, right? Peter, who says, if everyone betrays you, I never will. And they all agreed, it says at the Last Supper. Where are they to get the body of Jesus? Crickets. The women were looking, but they probably weren't in a position where they could really do much about this. Right, and this wasn't just the 12. The the scripture tells us that at one point Jesus had sent out 70 disciples, 70 people to preach the gospel and to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to be powerful agents of his kingdom. Where are they? Nowhere. All the courageous, committed disciples, gone. And one cowardly guy is left and God used him to begin the exaltation of Jesus has your faith ever looked a little bit more like Joseph of Arimathea than Paul the apostle mine has there's all kinds of moments when it's like, oh, I know I should say something. Oh, I know I should speak up. Oh, I know I, I know I should read the Bible and pray with my wife. I know I should care for my kids. I know I should be more bold at work. And I know I should pray. And I know I should. And you just feel really beat down. This tells you, listen, God uses cowardly, weak, afraid, uncommitted disciples And he saves them by his grace. And he uses them to accomplish his plan. Listen, this isn't that new. Think about the people that God uses throughout the Bible. He uses Abraham, who says, oh, that's not my wife, it's my sister. Why don't you sleep with her? He uses Moses, who killed a guy. He uses David, who has an affair and then kills a man to cover it up. He uses Elijah, who after this powerful victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, runs away in fear because Queen Jezebel has been a little too mean. He uses Peter. Before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me, Peter. That's who he uses. He uses Paul, who kills people, who persecutes the church. And he uses people like Joseph of Arimathea and people like you and people like me. That's what God does. Here's a second thing that we see. Second lesson is that genuine faith always eventually shows itself. Genuine faith always does eventually show itself. So on one hand, if you feel like, gosh, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't feel very strong and I don't feel like I know what I'm doing and I don't feel like I'm very good at it. And God's probably thinking, man, you're just a big wuss. Okay, first point is, hey, God can use that. God will use that. But the second point, to kind of maybe see the other side, is to say, listen, real faith does eventually show itself. It does eventually demonstrate itself. 
right? Yes, at the key moment, Joseph of Arimathea, quiet. But then another key moment arises, and he's the only one there, and he steps forward, and he gets bold, and his faith proves itself. At some point, real faith proves itself. If you go year after year after year after year and decade after decade, and you get to the end of your life and you go, I'm still kind of secret about my faith. You probably have some good reasons to question whether you have real faith. But at some point, it's going to come out. And don't be discouraged if your faith is weak. God uses the weak to shame the strong, the Scripture says. Here's a third lesson. Beware of writing people off. You're not God. Beware of writing people off, especially those of you who have walked with the Lord and been serious about reading the Scriptures and being involved in church, and you sort of look around at people, and they just don't seem very committed, and they just don't seem very hungry, and you just kind of end up eating at Denny's as you drift and you become an accidental Pharisee. I think if you were more courageous, if you were more bold, you're the reason American Christianity is in decline. Whoa. Easy there, God. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Judge not lest you be judged, for the measure you use will be used back on you. It's as though, one of the ways I I sort of view judgment of God is that it's as though we all have this like kind of uh, this app that's around our neck or this recorder, this audio recorder that's around our neck and it just records everything that we say. Everything that we say about what's important, everything we say about values, everything we say about what people should care about and what people should do and we make all these statements, we make all these comments and by the way, it also records our thoughts which is really scary and then you get to the judgment of of God and God says, hey, hand me me that player. You go, oh, this? You go, you hand it to him and he just presses play. He says, you know what? Let's not even use the Bible. Let's just use your standard. What will you say at the end of that tape? You'll say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God will, by faith in Christ. God gives mercy. God gives grace. But be careful of writing people off. That's not your job. Here's the last lesson. There's one reason you've ever even heard of Joseph of Arimathea, and it's the resurrection of Jesus, (laughs) right? If Jesus stays in the tomb, who buried him doesn't matter. Have you ever heard who buried Muhammad? Have you ever heard who buried Gandhi? No. But you've heard of Joseph of Arimathea. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is victorious. Because Jesus has the power to forgive and to cleanse and to save cowardly, weak, small faith disciples like Joseph and like you and like me. How do you know he can do that? Because he's alive. The reason you know about Joseph of Arimathea at all, the reason why he's in all four Gospels is because Jesus is alive. That's what we're going to celebrate next week. I hope you'll be with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for grace to sinners like me and to people like Joseph. 
God, thanks for this story. God, I pray that people here who are your disciples but feel weak and feel like they struggle a lot and feel like you just must never be happy with them. God, I pray that this story would encourage them. I pray that you would give them new opportunities to trust you and to step forward and to get more public about their faith. But God, until they do, would they, would they sense your love and your comfort rather than shame? I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.